0: Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Jacqueline Left Hand Bull. Jacqueline is a Lakota who was born on the Sioux Rosebud Reservation and grew up in the southern Black Hills of South Dakota. I started the interview by asking Jacqueline where she grew up. And what was it like growing up there?
1: Well, I grew up primarily in South Dakota. Uh, I was born on the Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation, which is really we call ourselves the Sičangu Lakota. But I was born there in the during the Second World War, and I lived in a cabin, a two-room cabin, with my grandmother, grandfather, aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, mother. I think there were 17 of us all together at some points in that period. And then also, I lived in, my mother moved to a nearby town because there was work there. So I also grew up in the Southern Black Hills of South Dakota. When I was growing up, I don't know, I think I had a pretty wonderful, looking back now, I, I think I just remember all the good things. that When I was a little girl, uh, whenever we were at home on the reservation, we went to town which was eight miles away in a buckboard wagon drawn by a team of horses, you know grandma grandpa maybe would go, maybe my uncle or somebody and one child per trip, and so I didn't get to go very often, but that's it was horses were the mode of transportation or walking and I think the other thing I remember mostly about was that just the freedom of wandering the hills and playing in the sand dunes and uh, when I lived in the Black Hills, I lived in a little town with a with a uh, Indoor, uh, naturally heated, uh, water pool, and so I spent my many of my summer days just swimming. I was playing in the river. Just left in the morning when my mom got home from work. She worked as a nurse's aide in the hospital there. And I don't remember the winters very well at all. Mm-hmm. I just remember like childhood being an endless summer. <laughs> Maybe sitting by the kerosene stove in the winter. That's about all. So. Yeah. Growing up was good, <laughs> and a, a large extended family. I we had gosh, I mean, there's so many relatives when you're Indian that that you acknowledge and a part of your life. And in that, I mean, because we're a tribal community, and so you are related to almost everybody, if not everybody, in one way or the other. And to this day, when you meet someone, you you know, you try to figure out how we're related or you know who somebody is, and then we'll say, oh yeah, you know, we we'd be related to your mother, kind of thing.
0: Now, how would you say the reservation has changed or is different than it is today?
1: I don't really know the difference between how I experienced it as a child and how you experience it as an adult, because I didn't have the responsibilities and the wariness that you have as an adult. As a child, I didn't have that anyway. Even though I meant to the extended family, I think that the five of us who are offspring of my mother were extremely close. And so... That was sort of my first safety shell, and then my grandparents were the next. And so when I'm home now, you know, I have lots of cousins and so forth. So there is still that sense of being supported in, in you know, on almost all your sides, so to speak. But I'm more aware, I think, of alcoholism and the use of use of drugs and, you know, the meth. Crystal meth came onto the about 15 years ago, maybe, and it's pretty bad there now. I'm aware of the poverty because I've seen what poverty isn't, you know, in, in other places. So it's more my awareness in my head than that there's been any major change. I mean, the road in front of our house when we were growing up, of course, was not paved, and now there it's paved, and there are you know automobiles, and people still walk a lot, but a lot of people have cars and. When I go to the tribal center, there's wireless in the, in the tribal center. So if I'm in a meeting there, then, you know, it's easy to access. And of course, there are a lot of, everybody has a television. Lots fewer people speak the language now than when I was growing up. I, Lakota was my cradle language. I'm not fluent in it now, but you still hear people talking, speaking in Lakota, but it isn't as though everybody can understand and respond now. So that change happens, but it's the same as it would be, say, where I live right now in Portland, Oregon. I just moved here not too long ago, and those same changes would apply to here, I think. Uh, more people own cars and have wireless. and Actually, in Portland, more people don't own cars, and they take the mass transit because it's uh, very green-oriented. Uh, you know, the concept of everybody having a recent mode of transportation is definitely true, so... I think moving, there's a, we, people on the reservation eat a lot better than we were when we were kids. I remember just looking forward to having meat maybe once every couple weeks sometimes. My grandmother would get up really early and make bread for us, and now I realize it was probably commodity bread. It didn't occur to me that there was any other, I mean, I didn't even know where food came from really so much when I was little. My grandmother supported us with doing beadwork, and my grandfather just helped out where he could. And I think mostly it's definitely a changes just as the whole world is changing, but in terms of relationships and children being safe and I think it's how you see it differently when you're a child and when you're an adult is the biggest change.
0: And what was religious life like growing up?
1: Well that was the best part. <laughs> my my uncle in the same little cabin, Yoshbay is what it's called, sort of extended family home was a healer, a medicine man. So people came from everywhere. And later on, I mean, up until the year he died in 1980, people came from two or three, Montana, and North Dakota, and down into Nebraska. People would travel to be treated by him. And he was the kindest, most gentle, self-effacing man. And yet he was tall and very handsome, very strong. Just seemed to, just to have caring for everybody. And He would have the ceremonies. He had been in the Second World War, and returned home. the time that I'm remembering, in those years into the 40s and 50s, and into the early 60s, I remember my grandfather and others would go and gather sage, and it would take an hour or two to get huge piles of sage. At least they were huge, and they were probably about three feet high. Sage was used like a washcloth in the sweat lodge, and so they'd put sweat the sage down the bottom, and then people would start arriving. For a ceremony, and and it was all very very beautiful and thoughtful, and people were kind to each other during those times. And my grandmother would feed everybody, even though she had very little ourselves. But um, and my aunties and aunties would help out, and it was really traditional. Like only the the men were in a sweat lodge together, and only the women in one. You know, and only Lakota was spoken. I think that was my very best memory. And about five or ten years ago, I was down. In, uh, where the old cabin was, it's gone now, and there's a, another house that's been built over the spot or real close to it. And my brother and I were walking around and we found the foundation of that cabin. It was so small. It was about, I don't know, 12 by 12. It was just a tiny thing, maybe 12 by 14. And in the bushes we found an old bowl, an enamel bowl of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And then we we walked up the hillside a little bit, we found on uh, this level place where I clearly remember the sweat lodge being... I said, remember, this is where Gunny's aunt, Uncle Gunny's sweat lodge was, and, yeah, we were standing there talking, we looked down, and at my feet were the, the deer antlers that he used to use to lift the hot rocks from the fire to put them in the center of the sweat lodge, and they were worn away to just calcium, but, you know, they, they still hang together, and I picked them up, and I said, well, do you want one? And he said, no, no, you take them both, you'll take better care of them, and, and I felt like it was touching something really, really sacred. And then every about every month, going on to the original question about what was it like religiously or spiritually. Then about once a month or so, it seemed a very long time. Of course, when you're a child, it is. A, a priest would come by, and my auntie Lulu would be the altar boy, and there would be mass in the cannery. <laughs> There'd be maybe eight or nine people, you know, sitting and kneeling, and she would be swinging this thing with incense and moving side to side, and it was all very mysterious and and quite interesting. And the priest would talk to people for a while and then he would move on, you know, get, you move on down the road to the next community, I suppose, eight miles away. And so when we moved to the town, then my mother would send us to the Catholic Church every now and then. She never went herself, but she would send us to the Catholic Church and we were supposed to go. And then for a very brief time, two years, I lived, I think it was about two years, I lived with my dad in Montana. He's also from our same tribe, a different family. My parents had been divorced by that time, and he sent us to a Catholic school. And so I learned a lot about Catholicism and, you know, was baptized Catholic and so forth and considered myself a Catholic, but also really saw the power and the beauty of our traditional way, and of course the Catholic Church didn't accept that. You know, I just didn't say anything ever and just sort of kept it to myself. Going to that school made a really deep impression on me, too, so I had this really intensified awareness of spirit, and I think that was, you know, when I say it was the best part of growing up, that and and having a a family, you know, like really feeling strongly connected to my brothers and sisters. I guess just to answer your question, that's kind of how there was this grounding. The first part of my life was in the traditional, and then I got exposed to Catholicism, and there was a little bit of a disconnect there all that time.
0: But you never rejected your native ways, even though your Catholic training was teaching you that you should.
1: I couldn't. No, it was, it was, obviously I knew that they were wrong. I mean, Mm. I I didn't, I was tested. I mean, I felt best to keep it to myself. And I used to pray about it. I used to pray also about how come if I was a girl why I wasn't as good as a boy mm-hmm. in, in Catholicism? And at the same time I prayed not to fail we were taught in, in uh, that school and in catechism in, in the other in when I was living in a little town in the Southern Black Hills also and the priest in the mission town on the reservation that faith was a gift and you shouldn't throw it back in the face of God. So I prayed a lot to understand it and but I still participated in the traditional, not as much through some years of my life when I wasn't, probably in my teens, not quite as much. But once I became a member of an Indian community in Washington State, I picked it up again and felt very strongly that, I mean, I just, I saw the power, even though I wasn't a healer. I, you know, I remembered all the miracles I had witnessed and, and heard about, but also saw the power of just singing a certain song and people would Tell me what they saw, or or what they felt, or where something happened during that time, and I, I thought, well, the spirits do come to help you, you know, and I knew it for sure. To answer your question, I couldn't, I couldn't reject it, but I didn't talk about it. I just kept it to myself. I really didn't quite understand how it fit, but, and I didn't think I would ever understand how it fit. But I did think it was, you know, like almost rejecting my parents in a way. And every, you know, a lot of teenagers do do that, but I just never thought, oh, this is all superstitious because this is what people, you know, the nuns and priests would be saying about the traditional indigenous religions that there were a lot of superstitions, and I would look for the superstition, and I could see it in some ways, but not, not so in others. I mean, like if, if you hung the horse tail in a certain place, you know, then that would be protecting the whole area. Well, I thought. It's really not the horsetail that protects it. It's the prayer that the guy says or the woman says when she hangs that horsetail. And that horsetail is a reminder to, that she's asked for blessings and protection for this area. And the same thing with the pipe. I think I understood from childhood that it wasn't the physical pipe that we were praying with. The pipe was a symbol of all these things that we acknowledged, understood, and acknowledged. And by looking at the pipe and holding it and so forth, it was so beautiful, but it was also not. If the pipe had been smashed, or if the pipe didn't exist, we could we could go through that same thing in our heart and our prayers, and it would be powerful. But these things were the beautiful representations, you know, the water and the plants and the animals and you know everything that the pipe represents and holds within itself is was is just symbol. At least that's how I understood it from childhood. Now I know not every Indian will believe that, but that's how I understood it from a very young age, sitting in these ceremonies with my uncle. I just thought, it's just how it is. It represents something deeper inside everybody, because otherwise it would make no sense. It would not be logical that an inanimate thing could have power over you.
0: Now, did you go to Catholic school through high school?
1: No. I went to my freshman year, and then you know, I think it was actually three years with my dad, because it seems like I was in the seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Those are the three years. And then I went to, freshman year was in a Catholic girls' school. And then I went back to live with my mom, who was a public high school then. And very small one in this little town of 4,000 people in the southern Black Hills.
0: So the public high school experience was very different from the Catholic school experience
1: oh yes it was because for one thing they were boys (laughs) (laughs) and if you're 15 that's kind of important but i think more than that you know that i remember when the first day of school and you know everybody got assembled and the teacher walked in there i was standing you know in out of respect like you do when when a a clergy person comes into the room and i looked around and nobody else was standing (laughs) up and i thought well maybe they didn't see them yet you know and then it took me another split second to realize that a public school and, and people didn't stand up when adults walked into the room. But
0: more than that, I
1: think the the quality probably wasn't as good because we had Latin and, and more options in science and other languages in the bigger school, in the, in the Catholic girls' school than we did in the little, little one. But the teachers were very good. I mean, I still remember things that they taught us, a couple in a particular, but... I think the the difference for me was, was social. Again, living with my father was pretty you know, he was a, a very strict person and we weren't permitted to go out of the house in the evening and or to have you know, to go to other parts of the city or the town and visit I mean we just weren't permitted a social life, frankly. And mm. and my sister had one sort of over the phone but not me and so my socializing was with my two younger brothers. At school during the day, and but when I went to live with my mother, then I got a job in the town library after school and did everything that kids do extracurricular as well as the academic part of school, and and just thoroughly enjoyed every day of being in high school from sophomore through my graduation. My education—it was a good enough education. I mean, it it was—it wasn't bad for South Dakota. The class I was in was extraordinarily close. It was even, I mean, years afterward, people in town would say, oh, yeah, you're from that class. That class is really, they really you know, liked each other. They cared about each other, and they took care of each other. And it was true. In fact, we are still having reunions almost annually. Wow. This many years later. Almost 50 years, yeah, 50, 49 years later. And I, I think we've had a class reunion every year for the last seven or eight years.
0: What did you do after high school? Well, I I
1: went to college in Colorado for a year, and then I ran out of money. And then I uh, made my way out to the West Coast where my dad lived and stayed with him and my stepmother. And my older brother and my older sister lived in the town and in the city. I mean, and my two younger brothers eventually came to live with my dad, too. And so I started college after I saved a little bit of money by living at home, and I went to Portland State for a while. And after a while, uh, I got married. My brother, I think the biggest thing was my brother was on the police force, and because it was the only job he could get, this was before the Civil Rights Act, and he was killed on duty. And that was a huge spiritual test for me, too, because it, you know I had to really come to grips with I was very, very close to him. Whether life after death existed, and I had to think and, and challenge my the, the doubts that crept in, and so forth, tried to figure it out if if I possibly could. And, and that was that was a big event in my life. was, was his, his death. He was twenty five, I think, and I was, or almost twenty five, and I was almost twenty one. So, but probably young for my age. I mean, I was pretty much did what I wanted to. do. I was. Sort of a hippie before they were hippies, and <laughs> in and in, in maybe beatnik, but not too young to be a beatneck. and but just really wanted to see a lot and do a lot and travel all over the place. And I I just didn't. I just felt the world was huge and I loved it and I wanted to see as much of it as I could and get to know as many different kinds of people as I could. It was a good time and, until he died, and then a year, year or two later, I think after, well maybe. Maybe a year later was all. I, I married. I met and married a Catholic. I prayed for to meet a good Catholic boy <laughs> <laughs> and decided that I didn't want to be alone anymore. I literally said, I'm going to marry the next person who asks me. And so let's make this a good one, God. <laughs>
0: mm. yeah. Somebody
1: that's going to be a good father. And I met this really wonderful man. And he was my age, of course, at the time. And Sure enough, in a few weeks months, he asked me to marry him, and I said I would, and so we had two sons, and we started to raise them in the Catholic Church, because he wasn't a good Catholic guy, and that's what happened after high- And then I, I, eventually, I went back to school and, and, you know, finished up my first degree. I think partway in there, my kids were in elementary school, and I began to, we pulled away from the Catholic Church. We oh. got really deeply involved in it for a while, and we had mass in our home, and just did a lot of involvement with young couples, and we were living in Montana then with my husband's job. And then we moved out to Olivia, Washington, with his job. I just could not find a home in the church, and it was just so unsatisfying that that we just stopped going all together after after having been in a place where it was okay to say what you were thinking and to ask questions and so forth. And, Again, it seemed like we were being treated like we couldn't think, that we would never be true adults spiritually and so forth. So we just sort of drifted. And I think it was in that period of time where I became aware of the Baha'i Faith.
0: Now, how did that happen? How did you become aware?
1: I think becoming aware of it was... uh, I think I'm still becoming aware of it in some ways. (laughs) (laughs) But because I understand it more deeply and, and more broadly and more well, intimately all the time. But i the first time I remember seeing anything in that period of my life about it was I was just reading an article in, a, in an Indian newspaper and it mentioned that this couple had been married and Baha'is had officiated or Baha'is had conducted the ceremony or something like that. And that was all it said. And there was something about that that really I needed to know what that was. Baha'i was about. And so I started asking the people I worked with and acquaintances, and nobody seemed to know anything about it, except one co-worker who said they thought they saw it in the phone book, and so we opened the phone book and looked and It was there. And then I happened to be at a meeting in Seattle with my work, and someone mentioned it. and The person mentioned in the newspaper article, I think one of them, they were in the group I was in, uh, Indian Educators, and I asked them about it, and, and they said, yes, if I would wait well, wanted to meet after the meeting was over. They'd be happy to tell me more about you know, any questions I might have. Well, I waited, and they forgot. Oh dear! <laughs> <And so laughs> it was not a very good impression. No. And after about an hour of waiting, I I drove the sixty miles home and thought, oh well, you know. And, uh-huh. and uh, a couple months later, we were at the same meeting again, and meeting of the same people. I mean, and they mentioned it, and I said, well, I just have about ten minutes because I've got to get home to cook dinner for my kids and. Anyway, so they said, well, come over here. And about four Baha'is in that meeting, they put me in this little room, and they started talking to me about the faith. And I said, well, so it's an organized religion. And, and they said, well, yes, it's, it is. And I said, well, that's too bad. And, <laughs> and I just, I just, I'm not at all interested in an organized religion, and I've really got to go home and cook <laughs> dinner. And to, well, wait, wait, you know, well, what is it about organized religions? And, and I said, well, for one thing, I've never seen anything organized that that agrees that I'm as smart as my brother. You know that a woman can be as bright as the man. And you know, I was, you know, obviously I had been involved in the in the women's movement by that time to be that aware. Even though I had been aware when I was 13, you know, here I was in my early 30s now, and and there was still this sense of you're not full, you're not a full human being, or not as good as because you're a woman. And so I mentioned that, and they said, well, as a matter of fact, and they told me about, you know, the the, teaching of the Baha'i faith, that men and women are equal, I mean, and the thing that really stuck in my mind was that if you had two children, a boy and a girl, and could only afford to educate one, you you must educate the girl, because she's the first educator of the next generation, that really intrigued me, but I also was very wary, and so I had to go cook dinner, so I said, I've got to go, and they said, Well, we have a meeting next month, can we talk to you some more? And I said, Sure, you know, and and they did. And it took about a year. Then it, it fell off to one person one or two persons, you know, talking to me often over the phone and I had all these objections and one by one they picked them off with a better answer than I could have imagined. And it was still just an interesting thing until one day I remember having lunch outside. This is really getting to your question. So that's how I sort of got engaged in a conversation. And I said, Well, you know, I was raised in a pretty traditional family, and I love so many things about the Catholic Church, but not the way it's being run, you know. But when you look at what Jesus did and, you know, his principles and what he said and so forth. And the fellow said, Well, didn't we talk about progressive revelation? And I said, What is that? And, he, and I said, Progressive, progressive. What is that? How does that affect revelation? And so he explained to me that a manifestation of God comes is sent by from God every so often you know over over the centuries and each one the message is pertinent to that time even though the the core message is always the same and suddenly I thought of course why didn't i know that that's absolutely exactly how it is and and nothing else makes any sense and so you know i just remember sitting there at this, at this lunch table outside and saying i wonder why i didn't Understand that, or think of that myself as, as the explanation, because it makes so much sense. I remember laughing and saying, "Well, you know, you don't know everything, and, and you, you can't figure everything out of yourself," and something along that line. And so then I, I think I thought, "Huh, well, that's pretty good." And it still it was a few months, and I was at a, I was on the Washington State Arts Commission at the time, and we had a an opening of an Indian center in Seattle and it was beautiful. The, art, the commission had funded these beautiful hangings by famous Indian artists and I was looking at one from the Northwest and it was just absolutely beautiful and I said it was the most spiritual carving I had ever seen and the guy said, well you know, a Baha'i carved that and I said, well it doesn't surprise me somehow because it seems to me that you know, there's so much spirituality in just about everything that a Baha'i and the way a Baha'i approaches their work, and so he would have to, an artist would just have that in, you know, really intensified, and he said, so you know enough about the Baha'i faith to say that, but you're not a Baha'i. He said, what is it that people, and I, I said, well, no, I believe in, in all those principles and so forth that, that being the Baha'is have, and he said, what is it that people can see the principles as being important, but not have the spiritual courage to commit to living by them? So I said I don't know, and after a while I said, you know what? Give me one of those enrollment cards that you have. And so he did. <laughs> but you know, even in his answer and even how I saw it then I didn't recognize that Baha'u'llah was at the center of it. It was still all principles and and teachings and you know social action kinds of teachings. So even though I signed an enrollment card at that time, I, it was called a declaration card, I think, and Somebody came to visit me and said, "No, you're not ready to be a Baha'i because you're really too involved in the women's movement, and you you don't seem prepared to give that up, and you don't, you know, you're also involved in the Indian fishing treaty rights movement, and and clearly, you know, you've you've got to consider leaving that behind, and so forth and so on." So I,
0: Jacqueline, why why were they asking you to leave those activities?
1: Well, they understood that they were divisive. I think. In fact, I'm sure that that's what she said to me. She said those are uh, divisive activities, and Baha'is are about unity. And I said, (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right because I think, in my view, I thought the Baha'is were to promote the equality of, of men and women and to and to promote justice. And she said, yes, but not in divisive ways. And so I said, oh. And she said, so. We'll take your card back and after a few months, maybe next you know next winter or next spring sometime. if you still feel this way, we can reconsider it, and I said, okay. <laughs> after a few months, I actually got a membership card, so they never came back for a second interview, but Meanwhile, I just said, "Well, fooey on that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye to all that I'm not you know I thought it was different, and I, and clearly it's it says it's one thing, but In in practice, it's not, or or maybe I'm just not bright enough to get get the picture of where the line is and what you can and can't do. And so this isn't something I'm really very committed to, committed to this work, but not to this idea of, you know, you have to withdraw in order to accept. They mentioned a little bit about detachment, and I thought I'm not detached, and, and it was easy to walk away from it. Well, what happened is I did eventually get a membership card, but I still didn't participate in Baha'i activity within the Baha'i community, but I start getting the American Baha'i.
0: What is the American Baha'i?
1: The American Baha'i at that time was a monthly newsletter in newspaper format sent out to every enrolled or registered Baha'i in the United States, and it came to my, you know, mailbox, and I would was on the telephone one afternoon and sorting the mail on the, on the kitchen counter, and and as I was talking, I I flipped it open. And quite honestly, I just considered it to be part of my junk mail. And but that day, because I was on the phone, I was flipping it open, and I was planning to move to a little island. And I saw that there had been established a local spiritual assembly for the first time on that island that month, or you know, whenever the newspaper covered that period of time. And I was kind of intrigued because I here's this national. A high newsletter, and it's mentioning the place I'm moving to, and so I kind of looked at the picture of the people and thought that's interesting. And afterwards, just tossed it into the—we didn't recycle in those days. <laughs> <Into the garbage. laughs> and and uh, and then when I moved to the island, it turned out that one day I was with my husband, we were driving on the shore, and he said, "You like the color of the stain on that house?" I know that, and I said, "I really like that." and He said, well, "Let's go ask what brand it is." So we pulled in the driveway, and we're sitting in in our truck. We were building this house. And and I looked at the guy that my husband was talking to who came out to work in the yard. That's why we pulled in. And and I thought, that's that guy in that picture in the Baha'i magazine, in the Baha'i newspaper. And so after the the conversation lulled about where to get the stain and how it held up and all that, I looked forward, and I said, are you a Baha'i to him? And he said, yes, I am. Are you? And I... Leaned back so he couldn't see me as well, you know, behind my husband a little bit, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, Let me go get my wife. Oh, well, she's sick in bed with the flu, but I still want to meet you. And he went running off to the house, and he came on, and he said, is it, is it okay if she calls you next week? She's really not feeling <laughs> really well. I thought it was so difficult of a man, you know, just, but he was really excited, I could see. And so I gave him my phone number, and she called, and the next week we went to lunch, and we were still there when they start serving dinner. She asked me a few questions, made a few comments, and it was easy for her to see that I was not very engaged in the Baha'i community. She said, we lost our assembly, and you're the ninth member. Well, so if you have nine members, you have you can elect a local spiritual assembly. I'm thinking about people who might not be with these terms, but somebody had moved away, and now there was going to be nine again with me there. And I said, oh, that's nice. I really didn't quite get it. So I thought, okay, so I have nine. That's that's good. And then she just kind of eased off, and she tried to find out who, you know, she wanted to get to know me, and then she understood I was really interested in the arts and in the women's movement and justice for Indians. And so she asked, if I would help her with a project, and you might be interested in coming and looking. I'd be so happy if you'd take a look at it. She said, I'm writing about the early women in the faith, and I want to pull out the contributions they made. And she said, would you be willing to to go over it with me? And I said, I'd love to do that. So I showed up, and there was another woman at, the, at her house when I came for it. It was, a, you know, like the next week or something. And she stopped me at the door and read me a poem by Roger White. Knowing that I love poetry, I mean, she just, she really had picked up a lot of my interest and was reflecting them back to me with so much love and kindness and joy. And when I think back about just what beautiful soul she just seemed so empty of herself and so full of trying to, you know, wanting to bring joy to other people. And then she said, before we start, can we say a prayer? And then I'll serve us some coffee. And so she offered a prayer. And then she just held a prayer book to her chest for a moment with her eyes closed. And then she said, isn't that beautiful? And I thought, uh-oh, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> and so she went to get the coffee, and I was talking to the other woman, and the woman was looking for something, so I picked up the prayer book and I read the prayer again. I thought, no, she's right. It's really is beautiful. And the rest is just that we got to be very close friends, and she would just share things about the faith that she loved. She was so enkindled with the love of Baha'u'llah And so empty of herself in a sense. I mean, just really focused on serving that I just wanted to be with her all the time. Not all the time, you know, but often I just would love to, you know, go see her. And she'd open up the door with a big smile. And her husband was so nice and always felt so welcomed. And we got to talking on the phone and would talk for hours about my... I'd had millions of questions and she never thought there was too many. She never gave me maternalizing answers. And pretty soon she just introduced Baha'u'llah to me in the most loving way that suddenly I realized that he filled up my heart, you know, and I believed that Baha'u'llah was who he said he was and I was worthy of being loved. And that was the other thing. I never really felt before that I was worthy of being loved. I think that it was more because of coming from a family that had was that surrounded me. I knew love for that reason and I related it to that in a way that that no matter what happens to your family, God doesn't leave you. It was kind of a, a higher level of understanding uh, the concept, and so that was probably well. I know that was in the in the early part of 1982, and it was in, in the 70s that I was first that I had first you know, heard of progressive revelation. And even though they talked about the manifestation of God bringing these new teachings, still the focus was on the teachings and not Baha'u'llah himself, not the manifestation. So it was related like almost anybody could, you know, make up the best ideals and put them forward and you could be a, become a follower of those ideals. So there was a there's a huge leap between one way of looking at, you know, the well I'm a Baha'i, but I can leave any time to I love Baha'u'llah, I'm nothing mm-hmm. in this world can ever pull me apart, can ever extract that from my heart. It's a process and it still is. I mean there are you know, just saying my prayers this morning and last night, I was thinking, I don't want to just say these prayers, I want to offer them with all of my being and you know, connect to the closest, most intimate way with my God. So it's, it's always a process, and then and, and I understand a little bit more sometimes, and then sometimes I think, where's that feeling? Where's that feeling? And I want that feeling of discovery and elation again, and, and it comes and goes. You know, it's there when I have the chance to share with someone else. And I feel it again, and I feel them catching it. All this optimism and certainty and privilege and the honor of being able to serve and all that just, it's overwhelming.
0: What was your husband's reaction to you getting involved in the Baha'i faith?
1: He was always supportive of just about anything I did. And in fact, when I went on pilgrimage, a few months after I sort of recognized Baha'u'llah himself,
0: Jacqueline, can you explain to the folks what pilgrimage is?
1: Many people go to the shrine of Baha'u'llah. At this time, later, we will actually go to places that he lived in Iran. But right now, that's not possible. In these days, it means to go to the Holy Land, to Israel, and to this, the shrine of the Bab and of Baha'u'llah. The day that I really got it, I remember, you know, when it really sunk into me that Baha'u'llah was who he said. It. He was, plus all these things that came with that understanding. I called my friend, who now I would consider my spiritual mother, and told her I wanted to go to where he was buried. She said, then you want to apply for a pilgrimage. And that was the first time I really, really understand it. I just knew that's what I needed to do. So when I told my husband that night that I had applied for this, I didn't even tell him I was applying. I don't remember if I did or not. But I just told him that, and he didn't have any questions. He said, well, okay, and, This was actually in in 1983, which we were in a terrible fiscal recession then. And Mm. he was a man who supported us through his sales. And so it must have been a big drain on us financially, but he didn't complain at all. He supported my going. However, our marriage was also breaking up. He said he looked into it and it wasn't for him. It wasn't a major obstacle for him. It didn't harm our marriage. In fact, if anything, I think we parted with more respect toward one another. The hard part was really with my children, who are now just preteens or in the early teenage years, I should say, and they, I think, associated my becoming a Baha'i with the same time that the marriage broke up. And so, it's taken a long time for them to, to trust my parents and my brothers and sisters. It was bad. I mean, my own family—you know, my husband and two children—that that part of our family, it wasn't so bad, but by my parents and everybody at home on the reservation, it was a different thing. They all thought I was doing some weird hippie thing or some weird city thing or off joining a, a cult that often it was sort of referred to. And Not too long ago, my sister said, are you still involved in that Baja thing, in your, in your Baja thing? <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> my mother once said if from what I told her, she said, if I ever joined a religion, it would be the Baha'i faith. She said, but it has too much power, and it frightens me, you know, because I would give her something to read. Yeah. She would just say, oh, this is, it just scares me. It's so powerful, and she meant spiritually. My father, for a while, he was upset about it, and then he tried to accept it, and then he got upset, and he told me once that he was really wanted me to to stop it and get out of it because he dreamt that i was going up on a platform and people were pointing a gun at me and they were they were going to kill me but they were going to kill me from in the most torturous way and he said, "In the darndest thing, he said, you were happy about it. He says, I really think you have to get out of this. In <laughs> I said, no, no. I said, if, if that ever happened to me, that would be the best thing. I would, you know, just, Dad, if, just tell me this, if that ever, just pray, if I ever get in that situation that I'm strong enough to, you know, to be happy about it. And he just didn't like that at all. But I mean, but that was after he kind of accepted that I, I was serious about it. And then, you know, among the rest of my family, they're still not sure, you know. They will say, well, I believe in our traditional ways in a way that says, well, you know, you, you're crazy or, you know, you've turned into a, a non-Indian or, you know, something, you know, that says, I'm not going to surrender my rights to somebody telling me what to do, you know, kind of. Are
0: these folks Catholic?
1: Some of them are Catholic, but most of them are to follow the traditional ways. Actually, it's a mixed bag. I think it just yeah. depends on the temperament of the individual. And some yeah. of them are very respectful. And I've noticed now that I have some gray hair that I'm often asked to say prayers. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, I guess just gradually, gradually. I mean, I, I knew it would be gradual. I didn't think it would be this long. <laughs> it was right. It Right. But when I went home to tell other people on a reservation in a particular project aimed at sharing the faith with as many people as who wanted to listen, there were over 500 people who enrolled in the faith. This is in the, like, 83, 84, 85, that period of time. It's probably well over 600 total, if you can't follow those years. And, and I was one of the, the people who went out most often, and almost invariably the people I talked with would end up enrolling in the faith. And I was really afraid that they would run me off the reservation and say, what do you think you're doing? You're just like a missionary, and, you know, so on yeah. and so forth, and, and in those days, missionary was not a, a good word, and I don't know that it still is. But it was just the opposite, you know. They would sit and talk, and they would say, yeah, I believe that, or, oh, yeah, I think that's right. And other times, I remember going to one place on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and
0: the young woman
1: with children was getting ready to take a swimming, she said she didn't have time to talk, and I said, oh, that's fine, you know, have a great day at the, you know, the lake, and we kept walking, and... He came running after us in a couple minutes and said, would you come back? My father wants to see you. And so we walked in and he said, well, I've been sitting here waiting for you all day. And He said, I asked my wife to bake a cake. And he said, I was told in my dream last night that I'd have a visitor today with really important something to tell me. So I had her bake a cake for you and it's waiting in the basement. We went downstairs and he didn't have time to set this all up in the minute that we came to his house half a block away. I said, Well, tell me more about your dream. And he says, It has to do with the Bible prophecies. And he said, In the name of God, in the name of our Lord. And he said, You know, He has many names. So I said, You know, that's exactly what we came to talk to you about. So we talked to him about progressive revelation and that the manifestation of God for this day was Baha'u'llah and how he came, how he was announced by the Bob and and then he came and fulfilled what the Bob said and and gave us the laws and teachings for this time, and we went over some of those. But he kept referring back to the Bible and showing us how this was prophesied that it would happen and this would happen. The New Testament, he was a very spiritual man, and at the end he said, when, when are our services? Will we have services on a certain day? You know, what will we do? And I said, well, whenever you choose. He said, well, can we have one now then? <laughs> so, I mean, And that was, several experiences were just like that, where people anticipated us. And knew that they' had been waiting or they had been told earlier in their life that this would happen. it was just opposite of being run off the reservation.
0: I was thinking about that, and a big difference is is that the Baha'is are not asking the native people to disregard or to throw away their traditions, but to share them as part of a diverse humanity. I would think that that's a big difference from what you were describing. Your experience growing up, being exposed to Christianity after being raised mm-hmm. with the native ways, mm-hmm.
1: and yeah. in fact, that often when I would be talking about the principles, and we have this old book that has pictures that shows and, and highlights them so that you don't forget. And it also is, is a visual for people who can really see what it is you're talking about when it's possible. But there was the thing about the cultural diversity. Diversity is a sign of perfection, and then there's cultural diversity, and that is honored and cherished, and, and it gave the example of flowers in a garden. And then I would tell them, you know, well, you know, my uncle is Adam, Adam Bordeaux, and uh, I know that it's a very powerful way of living that we've had for hundreds and thousands of years, and, it's the same for other people in other parts of the world, but now this is the, is the manifestation of God that has come to unite all of these by fulfilling all those prophecies. And you know, whatever it was, I mean, I would really try to just talk to them to explain the best way that I could in my limited understanding of the depth of it. So it was important. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Not to everybody, but to many of the people uh, that we spoke to those years of time on my reservations. And a lot of the young people who were flexing their identity in a way, you know, who were really insisting that they had rights to be Indian, which usually doesn't happen on the Reservation because everybody is one and there's no reason to doubt it, but they were feeling more connected to a movement of some kind and really wanting to participate. If their family wasn't already participating in traditional ceremonies, to be the one to step into that traditional way of praying again. So they were already thinking about it. In the same way that it, when, as soon as I heard that Revelation was progressive, it suddenly it wasn't superstition at all. It was just progressive. And some of the power had faded because now humanity as a whole has, was progressing. Some of that earlier power has definitely faded. There were still many beautiful things about it and ways of doing things. As long as they weren't rituals, that they were still perfectly valid in the way that you see something as a symbol then that's all it is. It isn't, you don't need to have a priest, but you can still look at the beauty of those symbols. So I think that various people, in different ways of looking at it, would explain it in a different way. But for me, it was easy to talk to people who were in the traditional way as well as people who were Catholic. or Actually, more people were Episcopalian among the people that I met. I think they were even hungrier than the Catholics because it was... They just didn't have that whole connection anymore, and it was more they were afraid of hell, and they were afraid of dying without having repented or something along that line.
0: Now, Jacqueline, I have one last question for you. Is there a story behind your name, Left Hand Bull?
1: There is a story behind this name. There was a boy who was adopted, raised by these two families on my reservation. It was before the time of the reservation, of course. It was you know, just as people were still free to travel. There were two sons in the family, and this, this particular boy was kind of small, but he was very, very bright. His best friend was his brother, who was very athletic and tall and really soundly built and so forth, and they loved each other dearly and grew up to be quite close. They were about the same age, I guess. In the time when everybody was going off and trying to find safety, when all the massacres on the northern plains were occurring, with the with the U.S. cavalry and so forth coming to to drive the Indians off, and actually to kill them off, mm-hmm. is what the political the tone was. Everybody had to divide into small units and go, and, and so the brothers were separated. But they each eventually had their own families, and years went by, and they didn't see each other after a long time. of not even hearing that the other was. Still, someplace you know in Canada or, or you know in this part or that part, they each assumed the other was dead and then, at the time when things were really, really bad, and they were heading to the newly established agency for the rosebud for the Chichangu, Lakota, they were both making their way back toward the southern part of south what was then Dakota territory, but now is South Dakota. They had scouts go ahead to finding their camping spots and where the river and if there was any danger and all that sort of thing. And the scouts from each of these families, this boy who was adopted had several names along the way, but his main name was Little. And the other boy, the tall, strong one, athletic one, was left-handled. Well, Little had several wives, and they were known for the exquisite handiwork they did, and he was known for his high intelligence. And so they kind of held their family together that way. handbull was an excellent hunter and a warrior, but he was the hunter who provided for a lot of people with what he got, and he would even do this to other camps they would come across. He would go out and hunt and help feed them for a while, but he was very poor <laughs> and ragged, and his family had almost nothing in the way of decent clothing and things that you need to hunt with and so forth. Their moccasins were real, just pitiful, from what you know the story goes. So the scouts saw each other, and they each went riding back and told Left Hand Bull and Little you know, where they would converge. And so both of these men jumped on their ponies and raced as fast as they could to that spot. And they jumped off and wept and hugged each other. And as everybody caught up to them, they had a big feast that night—a big celebration meal together. And after the meal was over, then. This little man got up, and he called all his wives, and his wives prepared all their things they had. They had put together their finest things, and they went and they presented them to Left Hand Bull's family. Mm-hmm. And they called this the Wopila. It's a big thank you to the Creator. It's what the word means, a Wopila. It's a it's beautiful thank you to the Creator for having kept that family safe. And so how they commemorated that was giving this, you know all their best things to this raggedy family of Left Hand Bull. And so after that ceremony was done, then Left Hand Bull got up and he started talking to people and he said he had nothing. He wanted to also give a Wopila, but he had nothing that he could give, he said, except this one thing that is very valuable. And his name was Left Hand Bull because when he was a young boy, he killed a a buffalo from the left side, which is a very difficult thing to do. And so he was honored by that name and he said, it's the only thing I have that I cherish. And he said, I'm giving... My name to my brother from now on, I will be little and he will be left handled.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So that's the story behind
0: wow. and that's
1: my, my grandma's dad who did that. And so in the picture you see this tall guy, handsome and his his name now is little and the, the shorter man is left handed. <laughs> because I'm the only short one in my family. The reason I knew this story so well is that I'm the only short one in my family. Everybody else is, my sister. Brothers are very tall, over six feet. Not my sister. She's probably about 5'10". And here I am at 5'2". And, and my grandma would say, don't worry, you're like your grandpa. You're like your grandpa left bowl, You're fine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're very smart, she would tell me. <laughs> I've always felt a close connection to mm. him.
0: It's a sweet story. He he wears a
1: big name, but he's really physically small. But this love that was between him and his brother is really the importance of the name, I think, because it was earned by a 14-year-old and then given away when it was the only thing he had. I wrote this for an article in a Baha'i children's magazine called Brilliant Star, and I took copies of it home to the reservation. I was kind of worried that they'd be upset that I was telling the story to the whole world, and they they loved having reading it about, and they all would nod and say, oh, yeah, we heard this.
0: Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was delightful.
1: Thank you for asking.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jacqueline Left Hand Bull, a Lakota who now serves on the National Governing Council for the Baha'is in the United States. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahiperspective.com For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22Unite. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.